I'm Dr. Judy and welcome to Supercharged Life where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. I am so pumped about today's guest. He is truly legendary and has achieved success in so many areas of life. He is one of the main shark investors of ABC Shark Tank, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, author, philanthropist, a groundbreaking entrepreneur and proven leader. When he talks, people don't just listen, they learn. He is a true American success story living a very supercharged life. Please welcome Mark Cuban. Yes. I'm so excited to have you here, Mark. I don't think I could ever li live up to that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I only fit in one hundredth of your life, but you're yeah, so whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, um, we're all staying at home right now. And we were just chatting a little bit before this began that your family is doing well. You guys are hanging in there. And uh, I've actually have been really loving all of the fun videos that you posted on TikTok of you dancing and just goofing off with your kids, which is just so lovely to see you embracing this very challenging time and just time of unknown for a lot of people. But before we get into all of that, um, you are such a success story, but you actually come from working class beginnings. So can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and your parents? Yeah, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, born in Squirrel Hill, moved to Birdland, where all the streets were named after birds in the South Hills, and then um, went to Mount Lebanon High School. My dad did upholstery on cars, um, so if you had a rip in your car seat, you took it to my dad, and, and he fixed it up. Um, my mom did odd jobs when I was growing up. Neither of my parents went to college, but um, they both had big aspirations for me. You know, they wanted to see me be successful and put a, a great, strong work ethic in me, and more importantly, they, they really pushed to me the, the importance of learning. And I think that's that's been my greatest skill ever since. Yes. Uh, wanting to learn, pushing you to learn, encouraging you to learn. And in fact, you actually had lots of business ideas, even as a child, showcasing baseball cars at the age of 10 and then making sales, selling stamps by the age of what, 13, 14. So you were an entrepreneur then. Yeah, I've been a hustler my entire <laughs> life. Um, you know, I used to buy baseball cards and take them down to the park and repackage them. So they always had a Pittsburgh pirate in it and, you know, make the money that way and improve my collection. I sold garbage bags door to door, worked on um, paper routes, um, sold candy, you name it. If there was, you know, worked in a, a drugstore, I just did everything you could possibly imagine. And, and I learned from every, every bit of it. Yes. And you had a very untraditional route to getting your advanced degrees. In fact, you dropped out of your high school senior year yeah. and started taking college classes and then came back around and used that to graduate with your high school class. And you did the same thing once you got to college, right? I, you know, I always wanted to challenge myself. Um, and so my junior year of high school, I took a psychology class and a Russian studies class that I ended up dropping out of. That was too much. Um, <laughs> and, and did okay um, in the psychology class. And then my senior year, it was like, I went to my guidance counselor and asked if I could take um, business classes. And, you know, there was just this big, long story why I couldn't. And so I said, you know what? I'm just going to go to college. And that's exactly what I did. I went to the University of Pittsburgh, um, joined a fraternity, Pi Lambda Phi, lived in the fraternity house because I needed housing and just started taking classes there. They didn't have a business school. And so I looked up a list of the top 10 business schools, picked out the cheapest one. It was Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. I went there sight unseen, figured out how to pay for my own school um, with money I'd save from stamps and loans and um, made it happen. And then when I got to Indiana, 
I decided that, um, again, wanted to challenge myself. And when we were registering, and this was back before computerized registration, I saw a line for a graduate school class, um, graduate level statistics. And I'm thinking, you know what? I'm 18 years old. If I can pass graduate level statistics, I can take any class in the world and do well. <laughs> so I signed up and this story goes on a wild tangent, but I signed up and it turns out he used sports for all to teach statistics. And so that made it really easy. Um, I had a professor named a um, Wayne Winston. He got an A in it. But the story gets great um, about 20 years later. After I bought the Mavs, the Mavs were playing in Indianapolis. At what? I forgot part of it. So about six months before um, I bought the Mavs, I'm watching Jeopardy. And on Jeopardy comes my stats prof, Wayne Winston. I'm like, I remember him. And then six months later, the Mavs are playing in Indianapolis at a Pacers game. And I hear, Mark, Mark. And thank God I had seen him on Jeopardy. There's my prof, Wayne Winston. <laughs> no one had really used statistics in the NBA at that point. No one had a full-time um, analytics person. So I'm like, why don't you come work for me with the Mavs? We'll use statistics to try to get at a competitive edge. We didn't have a losing season after that for 15 years. And all because I snuck into this graduate level class when I was 18 years old and then saw him on Jeopardy later. Just crazy stories. So amazing. But see, everybody who's listening right now and thinking statistics is not anything that's applicable to my life. Look, there's a way to apply that and yep. make it a win for the Mavericks for over 15 years. That is so cool. Yeah, you just never know, right? And so it, 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 it was crazy. And, you know, that was just, I always wanted to challenge myself, took other graduate level classes, even before I was supposed to be able to, until one day, the head of the business school, the graduate, um, the MBA business school saw me on campus, walked up, started poking me in the chest. Mark, <laughs> I don't know how you did it, but you're out of the MBA program because I never applied and never officially gotten in. Um, and so I was able to take my MBA classes and use them as my undergrad class and um, graduate from Indiana. So did the school just let you register for these classes? You just got in line and registered and nobody was paying attention? They never, they never you know, thought that somebody undergrad would want to apply for a graduate level class. So then when I, then I got an A in the first one and they were like, oh, he must belong here. Right. Then, I, I mean, Judy, I was tutoring people that were 10 years older than me in finance. It was crazy. Right. It was, it was wow. amazing. Wow. Well, you just exposed a big loophole then in the college admissions <laughs> process. So you just show up. I that. Yeah. I think they've closed that now. <laughs> yeah. And so after you graduated then from college, you actually went and crashed at a, a, a three bedroom apartment with five other guys. You were sleeping on the floor you kind of hustled your way to the top and you actually took over a bar that you started working at and helped them generate profits through these parties you were throwing, right? Well, that bar was actually my senior year in college. Oh, wow. We would throw these parties and I wasn't even 21 yet, right? But we would do it, you know, kind of like a party promoter would now. And so we started throwing the parties and, and did pretty well until we got busted for having underage drinking because we let all our friends in. Yeah. <laughs> and that bar, the bar side of my career end, ended relatively quickly. But then went down to Dallas, um, stayed with, like you said, I had five roommates, six guys in a three-bedroom apartment. It was brutal, but I got a job at working as a bartender. Um, and then during the day, I got a job at a software store until I got fired. Wow. And that, of course, was the beginning of everything. You got fired, and then you turned that into an amazing opportunity. And you started your first company after that, right? Yeah, I started Micro Solutions, where I found a customer 
um, architectural lighting. And I, I was just honest with him. I'm like, I'm sleeping on the floor. I got nothing. You'll front me $500 to help me start this business because this is software that you need. I'll take the $500, buy the software you need and promise it'll work out for you. If it doesn't, I'll wash your car, sweep your floors, walk your dog, whatever it took. Turns out it worked. They referred me to somebody else who referred me to somebody else, built this company, Micro Solutions, um, over the next seven, eight years and ended up selling it for $6 million. And so that was my big first hit. How old were you when you sold this company? I think I just turned 30. Wow. So this started in basically the room of your apartment. Yeah, I didn't even have a room. I had a pile. You know, it's just like I had a, 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 a... a towel that I stole from Motel 6, I think, or Holiday Inn, the one time I stayed there, you know, I had just a stack. It was nasty. It was so, so <laughs> nasty. Um, I can't even use the words to describe it. But, you know, all things um, turned out, right? Um, once I started to build micro solutions, I got a bed, an apartment with only two roommates and then my own place. And then, you know, a few years later, I was able to buy a house. That's wonderful. And I love some of your advice that you've been giving for people who are thinking about starting their own business or what should I do for a career? And I think in some ways it's actually countercultural to what we hear a lot of, because right now we're hearing a lot of go for your passions, but you say ditch your passion projects and focus on what you're good at. Can you tell me a little bit about that philosophy? No, we all have passions. The things we visualize ourselves doing, playing the piano, guitar, being in a band, right? You know, whatever it may be, we all have that, oh, this is me, right? This is what I'm passionate about. But in reality, if you look where you spend your time, you tend to orient your time to what you're good at, right? Because it's fun to do things that you're good at. So while I was never, you know, good enough at basketball or baseball, I found out very quickly, I'm not bad at business. I'm not bad at technology. And then once you get good at something, no one quits anything they're good at. And so what I try to tell people is experience as many different things as you could or as you can rather, and just try them. And then when you find something that you really put your time towards and you can get better at it, that's where you find yourself starting a company. You know, a lot of people ask me, how do I know when it's time to start a business? You'll know because you're good at it, right? You'll know because you have a product, you know, because you're, you're so caught up in, you know, focus on doing the work that that's when it's time. And you don't have to go out and raise money. The best businesses, like I gave you the story about having no money and getting a, a, a customer to front me the $500. I mean, that basically was started with sweat equity. That was just me sleeping on the floor and putting in as much time as it took. And that's what it takes. You know, just if you have a product or service, sell it, you know, make a prototype, sell it to your friends. That'll tell you if they're writing you checks, you know, they're buying it, they're Venmoing you, then you have something. Or starting um, a business and selling a service. If you get your friends paying you, then you know it's time to start it as a real business. It's great advice because you do get that positive feedback loop. When you're good at something, you feel good when you're doing it. So you want to learn more, you get better at it. And when you're in that positive feedback loop, if you get the positive money loop, <laughs> it's even better. Right? Even better. Right? I, you know, I mentioned I got fired from a company. I learned so much on what not to do at that business. I had a company after that where I started to sell powdered milk because I always thought, well, people needed to save money on milk. It's okay if it doesn't taste quite as good. No, I learned a hard lesson there. But you know what? It doesn't matter how many times you fail. You only have to be right one time. Then everybody can call you lucky. And that's, you know, I can't tell you how many people have said I'm lucky and I'm okay with that. You know, you just you just got to put yourself in a position to see, succeed. And again, it's not even about raising money. Like Damon John on Shark Tank, um, talks about it all the time, the power of broke, 
when you've got nothing, like I'm sleeping on the floor. I mean, I'm eating mustard and ketchup sandwiches. I'm going to a bar and having one beer for $3 so I can eat all the free fried mushrooms and gain 25 pounds. You know, it, it was okay because I had nothing to lose. My car was a junker. I had no bills. I was, you know, why not? That is the ultimate time to go for it. And these times right now are a perfect example. It's a perfect corollary, right? Because people are losing their jobs and they are looking for options and it's very difficult right now. And so, you know, when you've got nothing to lose, go for it, yeah. you know, create that business and just ask yourself, why not me? Why not us? Why can't it be me that creates this company that blows up into something incredible? Because it can be you. You know, the, you just don't know until you try. That's right. And just having that bold audacity to just take a chance. And like you said, it's there's no time like today. There's no time like when you have nothing to lose and you got to do it. Yeah, my car. I mean, I, we can talk about cars, right? When I came to Dallas, I had a, a 77 Fiat X19 that had a hole in the floorboard. And I had to put you know, oil in every 60 miles, basically. And I knew it was going to fall apart, but it made it. And then all of a sudden it did fall apart and I didn't have a car. And you know how I got my next car? Well, I applied for a loan, got turned down. One day I'm with my friends and there's a car on the side of the road. And it was an old Trans Am, old beat up Trans Am. And I'm like, somebody just abandoned that car. I wonder if I return it to the bank. Maybe they'll give me a loan for it. I open up the door. There are the bank papers right there. Somebody literally had abandoned this car. And so I called up the bank and said, look, I found this abandoned car. Would you guys do me a favor? would you let me take over the payments? And they came, you know, they got me another set of keys and let me take over the payments. And for like five months until that car didn't fall apart, that saved me. Right. And so you just don't know, it just could be anything that, that is that linchpin, that is that inflection point that helps get you over the hoop, over the, the hole that you're in. Yes. And right now you've said that in this point in our country, we are at an inflection point too because of the pandemic and what it's doing to our economy. And you actually just accepted a position in the new advisory group for reopening the economy for the president. I'm so thrilled that you're going to be helping to advise what this is going to look like. So how do you think our government leaders have done so far in handling this crisis? You know, no one can do a good job in all of this because we just don't have good information. It's it, There's a lot of guessing going on. So you know, everybody thinks they can do better, but I, you know, I'm not a fan of President Trump's, but I'm not going to disparage the work he's done because he's tried his best, right? And I like the fact that he's out front, um, not hiding. He's in front of us every day saying what's on his mind for better or worse. And so I give him credit for that, um, you know, but for all of us, you know, in the guidance that I'll try to give is we need to try to get more information. We need to talk to as many people as possible because we don't know what America 2.0 is going to look like. Nobody does. Right. There's going to be, you know, great companies created out of all this. There'll be a lot of changes. But whenever that day is that America 2.0 starts and we're allowed outside, you know, people aren't going to just say, I'm going to do it just the way I always have done it. There's going to be companies in particular that are going to say, what can I do better? What can I do differently? What should change? You know, should I treat my employees better? Should I treat, you know, should I hire more? Should I hire less? Should I change my product? All these things are going to change. And that'll be the advice that I'll give him. You know, that we need to talk to as many people that are working, that are getting paid by the hour as possible, as many small businesses as possible, because they're the ones that are really going to guide us through this, because they're going to have the most impact. They're the closest to where the action is really happening. 
and you are a data-driven guy. We were just talking about statistics. So you're all about more statistics. Let's do more studies. But like you said, let's talk to the people whose backbones we're really utilizing to try to rebuild our entrepreneurship and our economy. And capitalism is going to have a completely new face to it. I, I love how responsible you've been in the recent interviews and advice that you've been giving that really it needs to be back to the employees. That's the focus. So tell me a little bit about how you think that's going to transform this next wave of capitalism in America 2.0? Well, I think it's going to be compassionate capitalism. And, and here's why. You know, for as long as I've been starting businesses and investing in business, it's always been a top down, right? Where you talk to the CEO, the entrepreneurs who started, man, woman, doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter their demographics, but they kind of have the vision for the company. But that, that was typically in an established environment. Even when we've had recessions, even when we had the Great Recession, that was geared towards banks and insurance companies. Everybody else pretty much continued to do business the same way. That's not the case now. If you want to restart a company uh, and continue forward in America 2.0, you're going to have to treat your employees a whole lot better. You're going to have to listen a whole lot more because they're the ones talking. They're the, they're the consumers themselves, you know, and they're talking to their friends and their families and how they go back to the you know, how they come outside and how we, you know, come out of this quarantine is going to define which businesses are successful or not. And so to me, it was very important, not just to treat my employees well, but also to, to talk to them. We had a, a Zoom earlier today. What ideas do you have? Because again, you know, I have a lot of experience in doing things in America 1.0, but nobody has experience in America 2.0, nobody. And so the great ideas, the best companies are going to come from places you least expect it. I think in 10 years, even five years, when we look back, it won't be somebody like me who started the next great company. It's going to be somebody who was broke, somebody who lived in a disadvantaged community where everybody thought was crazy, but had this crazy idea that all of a sudden started making sense to people as we started coming outside. And so those are the people I want to encourage to step up. Those are the people I want to hear from. Those are the people I'm going to encourage the president to talk to. And those are the people I try to encourage to start, start jobs. The crazy you are, the less you have, you know, because you see, you connect to people because you have to, right? And you're, when, when things start to change, when it's that N plus one day, that new, that America 2.0, day one, you're going to know what's happening, you know, on the street. You're going to know where and how people are spending their money. And that's a huge advantage over, you know, the people in the ivory towers, the elites, the people who own the businesses now. They're not going to have access to that. I had access to, access to it in the past, and that helped me a lot. But this is a whole new world. And so that's why I'm going to be doing a whole lot more listening than talking when it comes to, to startups and investments and helping people. I love that you're going to be listening to people who, like you said, are going to be sort of on the ground level, seeing what's happening. And you were one of those people at one point, and that's how you started your first successful company. And I'm glad that we're kind of returning to that idea of, hey, maybe it's not about all of the billionaires or millionaires who are talking. It's about the people who are actually suffering at the ground level. Maybe they lost their jobs, their hours were cut. And this responsible capitalism, this compassionate capitalism. I love that idea. And I love that you are leading by example, because you are paying your hourly workers at the Mavs arena until the end of the season, just as if they were working, you put together a program to pay for childcare of healthcare workers, and you're giving reimbursements for employees who are still 
patronizing local restaurants and businesses. We'll do more too, right? Because a lot of people get excited to help at the beginning of a crisis, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's what happens when it drags on and it's three, four, five, six months and you're not getting accolades for helping. And that was a conversation we had this morning. You know, we're keeping some dry power so powder so that we can help when other people have fallen off and aren't helping as much. And don't get me wrong. We're not the only company. We're not the only people. There are a lot of people doing amazing things in this type of environment. Unless everybody's a hero, nobody's a hero. You know, unless everybody enforces social distancing, we all suffer. And I hope that people heed your advice, because while many are doing a great job following directives, we have seen a wave of protests around the country where people are out without masks in large groups, defying federal and state guidelines. And I hope people can be patient and stick with this as long as directives are in place, because early research suggests that social distancing is working at flattening the curve and reducing the impact to our medical system. But I think the common thread among everyone is fear. Fear of the unknown, as you mentioned, we have imperfect information across the board regarding the exact statistics of the COVID spread and also of the economy projections. In fact, over 22 million Americans have filed for unemployment benefits in the last four weeks, and that exceeds the number of jobs lost over 18 months from the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009. So how will we work after all of this? How do you see us getting back to the new normal? Everybody's going to have a side hustle. Everybody. Right. We talked a little earlier about doing things in your community and people with, you know, their ears to the ground and feet on the street. Those are the people that are going to start and hustle and create the initial businesses. And some of those are going to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And some of those will be huge and some of them will will stay small. But, you know, it's that American ingenuity. Right. It's that that entrepreneurial spirit, the American dream. That's what makes this country different from every other country. And yes, there's a lot of people that are in difficult circumstances. But the reality is, if you're a person of color, if you're LGBTQ, whatever you know group you fall within, you're going to be the one that's able to sell to the people you know well. You're going to be better suited, and that's where the opportunities are going to come from. You know, we we talk about it all the time um, in in my companies that you don't want people that look like me selling to some you know a woman of color or the Latina communities. Not that I can't figure it out. But there are people that already know it's ingrained in them, that it's authentic to them, right? And they can be authentic in selling your products or creating new products that are authentic. And that's going to help in more. That's just going to explode. And so in Hispanic communities, Black communities, wherever it may be, the people have ideas and create authentic products, authentic services. Those businesses are what's going to propel us. It's not going to be top down. It's going to be bottom up. Yep. And doing what they know, doing what they already experience. And that's where maybe all of the new creations are going to come from. And you sound like you're very optimistic about the future of America. And I know that a lot of people are feeling really stressed out right now. In fact, right now we have a $2 trillion stimulus package. And I know that you've been outspoken about this in terms of its flaws, but also how to fix them. So what do you think we should be doing better as, you know, as, as far as how the government can be helping the individuals? You know, I mean, we, we've got to be patient a little bit, right? I mean, if you look back to the ACA, um, Obamacare, when they came out with healthcare gov, it was a disaster at the beginning. And now we look at it as being successful. So I'm ready to cut the government some slack that this thing didn't happen as quickly and as efficiently as we would have liked. Um, but at some point, we're going to have to start recognizing, okay, in America 2.0, taxes are going to be different. We're going to look at things differently. Um, you know, can we get money in people's hands a little bit more efficiently? There's ways, you know, that's a conversation for another day, but we can do things like, you know, looking at how do we make our employment base stronger, 
right? And one of the things that we I think are is important that when we look at infrastructure, it can't be about rebuilding the past. Rebuilding roads and airports is great, but we have to dominate the industries of the future if we really want to create jobs going forward. So things like robotics, how are we going to invest in robotics? Taxing robots, right? Why wouldn't we create the equivalent of our FICA taxes for employer and employee, the 12 point was a 4%, and take 9% of that and put it into social security in that fund and 3% into R&D for robotics so that we can invest in dominating and where they take jobs, we have funding for the future, uh, particularly as we're, we're becoming an older society and we need more money for social security. You know, we can do things like tax ta um, cloud computing because artificial intelligence is really going to drive a lot of our commerce and a lot of our business growth in the future. And the foundation for artificial intelligence, other than the, the engineers and the scientists, is cloud computing. It takes a lot, a lot of, of computing power. Let's tax that one, two, three percent. So we start creating and recreating a tax base because all other income sources are going to fall. These are going to grow. So I can go on for days, Judy, about ideas I have on that, but really have so, many, so much time. And I love the fact that you're talking about AI and robotics and how that's going to be the next phase. And when we think about manufacturing, that maybe that should be the predominance of work that people are doing in this country and, and maybe not outsourcing as much. Yeah, manufacturing is going to be different, right? If you just want to create the assembly line of years ago, that's not going to work because China, Japan, Germany, they're not sitting still, right? You know as well as I do, right, that they're the leaders right now. And so that's why we have to invest because the way we're going to increase total employment, and particularly for unskilled labor, is by dominating manufacturing via robotics and having jobs for maintenance and repair and um, service and, you know, um, reviewing and, and writing software for it. Those are things that, you know, everyday jobs, maybe not writing software, all the others are everyday jobs that anybody can do. And in total, will create more jobs. Yes. And you've always been on the cutting edge of technology, like AudioNet, which later was broadcast.com, really responsible for streaming in terms of its original debut. It was crazy. Yeah. yeah. You know, I try to stay one step ahead. I just hope I'm not losing a step. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you're actually doing your part in educating our next generation. And you have something com coming up today, actually, through the Mark Cuban Foundation, where you're doing a free class, Learn AI in 60 Minutes. It's an introduction to AI. Yeah, I mean, because AI is going to be important, as important as um, the internet and mobile computing and cloud computing were, um, AI is going to have more of an impact. When you look at what Vladimir Putin says or what China says about their future, it's all built around AI. You know, Putin said, whoever dominates AI dominates the world. And so it's tough for a lot of schools, you know, even before to really create curriculum for kids. Yeah. And we wanted to get kids excited about it. So my foundation started working on it. And so, yep, you're right. Today's the day for the class this afternoon here shortly. I love it. So, you know, parents who are looking for ideas for homeschooling, I mean, everyone's looking for stuff to do. This is a perfect time to learn about it and thinking about Absolutely. ways in which you can really infuse the knowledge base that these kids need going forward. So is this where we think you'll be investing a lot of robotics and AI in the future? Absolutely. I'll give you one other thing, particularly if you know you're out of work. You're, it doesn't even matter what how old you are. You can be 13 or 35 or 65. But one of the things that's also going to change is ambient computing, voice control, right? So if you have Alexa or Google Home, and you you know how we talk to our devices, you know Alexa, what's the weather? There's ways to create scripts to get those devices to do a lot of different things. If I was 16 years old looking to start a job or looking to create a job for myself. 
I've become an expert in Alexa scripting. It's kind of like the new HTML. When the internet first happened, creating websites with HTML was a big deal and kids really got ahead and made a lot of money that way. Well, creating ambient computing, because we're going to want to touch fewer things when we go back to work and when we go to new places. We're not going to want to touch you know, elevator buttons. You know, We're not going to want to touch handrails, but we're going to want to give um, instructions. And so using Alexa and Google Home and learning how they script and things like that will be a huge opportunity for you to go out and charge $25, $30, $50 an hour from folks who don't understand it and change the way they do business or change the way we do things in our home. Um, and I think that's a great opportunity for any 14, 15, 16-year-old because it's not hard to do. It's just that most people don't know to do it. Right. And so if you're listening, you might want to go on Shark Tank with those ideas and see, <laughs> bring it on. Yeah, and see if Mark will invest in you. So, you know, you have been on Shark Tank since its inception. Yep. And what is what are some of the favorite things about working on that show for you? You know, the most favorite the the thing that's most favorite for me is that it sends the message to the people who watch that the American dream is alive and well. Yeah. You know, that just all the conversation we've had today about being positive and that anybody anywhere in the country can start their own business. You know, we've had people out of their garage, you know, create screen mending devices, you know, um, simple scrubs, um, fruit-based scrubs um, for skincare. You know, kid, 11 year old came on and, and you know, um, for simple sugars. And so just all these companies, because people watch Shark Tank, they get inspired to, yeah. to go out and start a company. They get inspired to take that first step because they see people that look like them, act like them, talk like them. They have the same background as them, not necessarily Harvard grads or anything fancy. Right. But just regular everyday people, they can start a company. And if they can, I can. And that's the best part of it. I mean, I can't tell you how many times in the past people would walk up to me on the street, Mark, 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 my son, my daughter started this company because we were inspired by, by Shark Tank. And that's the reason I do the show. And I think it, it's, it's more relevant now than ever. The idea that the American dream is still alive, even right now in the pandemic, when people are maybe getting discouraged or down, it's wonderful to get to see that. And I love the episodes, like you said, where it's this young kid who looks like they don't really know much, but actually they know a good deal. And amazingly, sometimes they turn you down, when oh, yeah. I think they're, you're giving them a, a pretty fair shot. A lot of smart kids that come on, there are a lot of smart people that come on there. And plus, you know, they've been watching us for 11 seasons. Seasons now Friday night on ABC. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they learn what we like and don't like, but, you know, you can just tell we've trained a generation of entrepreneurs and, and that just feels amazing. And I'll keep on doing that show as long as they let us. What is your the favorite company that you've invested in that you can recall right now? Um, oh my goodness. There's a lot. Um, Simple Sugar is the one I referred to earlier. I like, I like when, when people you know, invent something out of necessity. Yeah. So there was a woman, Lainey Lazari, who started this company when she was 11, came on Shark Tank when she was 19, was from my hometown of Pittsburgh. It's still my hometown of Pittsburgh. And comes on and she invented a, a fruit-based scrub that you can use to just, you know, cleanse your, your hands, your skin, wherever, right? And it's got the scrub element to it. So it, it buffs and scrubs, all those things. I mean, I'm not the core customer, but you get the point. <laughs> Within six months of the the show airing, she calls me up or emails me actually. And she goes, Mark, oh my God, oh my God. I'm like, what's wrong, Lainey? She goes, I've got a million dollars in the bank. What are we supposed to do? And I'm like, first, you just take a deep breath and smile. Second, you put aside, you know, money for your taxes. And third, you, you know, put some in the bank and you reinvest in the business. And now she's doing multiple millions of dollars a year, wow. making great profits. And she's 24 maybe now. 
and still going strong. And starting when she was 11 in a small town in Pittsburgh, East Pittsburgh. It really sounds like she has a lot of you in her too. Just that entrepreneurial spirit as a child. Well, that's what it takes. I mean, another kid, Ben Stern, came on when he was 16. And he's got um, something called Nobo Drops. And so he's very concerned about the environment. He's very much a um, conservationist. And with Nobo Drops, rather than having shampoo that we take out of the plastic containers typically, right? They're just little shampoo drops that are in dissolvable containers that he patented. And so you just put it, take a drop, put it in your hands underneath the shower, rub your hands, put it in your hair. It all dissolves and you get a shampoo and there's no waste. Wow. And so yeah, Nobo Drops is just killing it now. He just got a bigger investment to grow even more. He's in, he was in all these hotels, is, will be again in all these hotels. And now he's selling direct to consumer for anybody who's really interested in living a sustainable lifestyle. My kids love him, you know, my son in particular. And when we get more, when we get more. So he's doing really well. That's great. It's so cool to hear the ingenuity that comes from some of these minds, you know, like you sort of think about something, what, what's the problem here? How can I make it better? And I know that yes. that's a big philosophy for you too. And you've really seen this entire period of time that we're, we're struggling with as opportunities just to re-examine and do things better. And one of the areas that you've also talked about is basketball. How are we going to yeah. approach the draft? How we're going to deal with, you know, getting people back into sports because it's such an important part of our culture. It, it establishes normalcy and community, something that we all need right now. So what are some of your ideas about how to bring basketball back? Well, first of all, it has to be safe, right? You, you can't do anything that jeopardizes the health or safety of our players or anybody who would be working in a game. But once the scientists like you come back and tell us that the time is right, um, then, you know, for us, it'll be cleanliness of the arena, but we'll probably start playing without fans and we'll probably put everybody in one single location where we can kind of quarantine and test and everything. And then we'll blow it out on television and streaming it so that everybody can see you see it because you're right. You know, we need to come back. We need that normalcy. We want something to cheer for. We want something to get excited about. We want to, you know, Mavs fans want to see the Mavs play. And so, you know, I think we actually have a moral obligation to do it as quickly as it's safe, yeah. you know, not to rush. We can't do that. But when it's safe, because that's going to be, you know, it literally was the NBA shutting down, you know, March 11th, when it really dawned on people that this is serious. And I think the NBA coming back will also send the message that, OK, maybe things are cleaning up or clearing up and the future is just as bright as we hope it to be. Yeah. I, I again, I really look forward to that day when we can start doing this again. And, uh, and, and we need it, we need it, but it's so great that you have these, these really, um, impactful ideas that are so thoughtful though. And you're thinking, you know, I don't want to do this too quickly. I want to make sure it's safe. We got to protect the players. We, we got to do it in a responsible way. Cause a lot of eyes are on you right now. And what I also love about you, not just your business life, but your family life, it's so authentic as well. You know, you, you're so fun on TikTok. You're a very good dancer, Mark. <laughs> I don't know about that. You've been on TikTok. <laughs> yes, you guys have to check it out because it's so fun. There's all of these really cool social clips with your daughters and your son dancing, having fun, just, you know, just having a blast. And also you have such a humble way that you manage your household. I think people think, oh my gosh, you know, Mark Cuban, billionaire. He's got a ton of people milling around working for him at all times, but you have certain rules. You cook your dinners with your wife, Tiffany, and you put your kids to bed every night. Tell me a little yep. bit about why you felt like it was so important to still have that level of community, you know, really about the nuclear family in your home. 
I don't want them to grow up to be entitled jerks. <laughs> you know, it's just that simple. I mean, my wife and I grew up kind of the same way, yeah. um, just in different cities, obviously, but um, that scares me more than anything. I don't want them to think that, you know, everything's always going to be taken care of for them. I want them to be able to fend for themselves, think for themselves, create for themselves. And a lot of that has to do with them having responsibilities, which is still a struggle. You try getting a 16 or a 13 year old girl to sweep the floor or sweep the, sweep the kitchen floor. You know, they're still 16. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But having forced family fun, having, you know, movie night, whatever we can do to try to, you know, just stay as solid as we can. I mean, you know, I'm really blessed. I'm, I'm really fortunate to have the kids that I do 99% of the time. Um, <laughs> That's not unusual for any family. Right. And you and Tiffany both came, as you mentioned, from working class families. And so I think that that obviously helps. You know, you guys see the the value in that type of upbringing and still having your children work for things that you're not just going to write them a check and it's going to be a free for all. No, absolutely not. I mean, they they hear from you all the time, you know. (laughs) How are you going to pay for this? You know, how much does it cost? You know how much it costs. You have your own money for this. You know, how are you going to earn that money? It may be something like reading a book, which, you know, I'll, they know I'll pay a premium for. It may be, you know, doing so. It may be doing math problems. That's the way I used to do it, math for money, just so they get more comfortable with math. Um, whatever it may be, then they know there's going to be a, something they have to do in order to get something they want. And there's no exceptions to that in our household, none. That's wonderful. And I love the fact that you have so much structure, you know, it's forced family fun, like you said, but there's also a lot of structure in terms of there's a phone curfew, you know, you can't keep using the internet after a certain hour. My oldest daughter turned 16. That kind of hasn't worked nearly as well. Trust me. Yeah. Both, you know, when they were a little bit younger, that was, that was easy, but 13 and 16 year old daughters, now it's more of a struggle, but we track it, right? We watch and we want to know where they're at. Mm-hmm. You know, when they go live, you know, I'm getting my alerts so I can check on them. And I'm looking at the comments and I trust them. They're great kids. Um, it's not so much that I'm trying to watch watch them and, and just, you know, micromanage them, but I like to mess with them too. So I'll go on <laughs> their, their live TikToks or their live Instagrams and I'll put in stupid stuff. Yes. Right? So, you know, yeah, you know, you know, I'm the dad that, you know, when my daughter was out there with a group of their buddies at a football game, I'm the one screaming, did you take your rash medication? You know, just dumb stuff like that. Oh yeah. I mean, that's wonderful just to keep them humble, you know, and, uh, and, and have some fun. I mean, it it wouldn't be right if you didn't embarrass them every once in a while. That's hundred percent. hundred (laughs) percent. That's your parenting duty. So what um, tips do you have for people to maintain some sanity and still have fun at home during all of this forced family fun time? Yeah. Don't stress, first of all. Right. I mean, you know, like you said earlier, I mean, you go through that initial stage where it's really aggravating and then you kind of settle in and we've kind of settled into our routines. Um, You know, we didn't try to stop my son from playing Minecraft, you know, or my daughters from being on TikTok. You know, we we let them germinate that. So we've tried not to force them out of their comfort zones, more just get to a schedule and come down for dinner. Here's some things we're going to do but also kind of ask them to introduce the fun stuff like the TikTok videos, right? Things we know we can do together or shooting baskets outside. Now our new thing, if I can make it work, my stuff is right here. Um, There was a deal on Shark Tank, um, bubble soccer, where they have these big bubbles that you put on. Well, you know, having these big bubbles, we're able, we're going to be able to go outside and bring their friends over and have, get them their own bubbles and enforce social distancing and get some exercise and have some fun. 
the first professional sports league that comes back, maybe 10-year, 15-year-olds playing bubble soccer and us paying them a dollar for every game they win because we need sports back. So watch for us on ESPN. <laughs> yes, we do. That's another great idea coming down the pike. Mark, you have so many great ideas. I think people are really looking to your leadership right now. And you've been asked multiple times about a Mark Cuban presidential run. You have not ruled that out. So where are you today on that? I mean, it's unlikely, but <laughs> these times are so crazy. You just, you just never know. Right. And so it's just the entrepreneur in me. So it never says never, you know, so the door is always open. Something crazy can happen. Um, not likely, but you know, for all the reasons for what we've discussed, I'm not going to take shots at anybody. Everybody's trying their hardest, but you know, people aren't opposed to alternatives and, you know, just hopefully we don't get back to business as usual in politics where it's so partisan, you know, because that partisanship is killing us. I'm appreciative that you're not trying to put blame on anybody and you're just trying to solve problems. So if you were the president, what are the three biggest changes you would make right away and why? Oh my goodness. Well, we talked about the taxing thing. Um, you know, number one, when it came to appointments, I would mix it up so there'd be equal parts, Democrats, independents, and Republicans. It, there'd be no one party dominant. I do the same thing on the Supreme Court. If there was a Republican appointed last, the next one would be a Democrat and the next one would be an independent because I want balance because I want it to be about the rule of law, not what somebody's dog dogmatic beliefs are. Um, I'd probably go out there and really emphasize small business and working with small business and people on the ground. And so, you know, you see a lot of the programs right now. There's some small business programs, but most of the money is going to big business because that's where the employees are. But it's not getting to the employees. And so I probably increase. Two, well, let me simplify that. Two things. One, I'd raise the national minimum wage to fifteen dollars. And two, I'd want to make sure that employers didn't have employees on their payroll as full-time employees on the payroll that we're also getting government assistance, right? Because to me, that's that's the worst part of socialism. If I have a company and I've checked at, at the companies that I run to see, do I have anybody getting government assistance? Because that's embarrassing to me, right? That I'm not paying them enough or I don't understand their circumstances enough. And so taxing companies whose employees aren't being paid enough so that it's, it balances out because there's no reason for taxpayers to subsidize any company because they're not paying enough and that individual is having to get government assistance. So those are off the top of my head. Yeah. And that's a great idea. And I think it goes to that compassionate capitalism that we were talking about earlier. Let's take care of our employees. It's like anything else. If everybody's playing by the same rules, then everybody's playing by the same rules and they have equal opportunity to succeed. It's no different than commodities. If the price of, of copper goes up, every company that uses copper it goes up, right? If the price price of pay of cost per hour goes up, as long as it goes up for everybody, we've seen circumstances where one community increases and others next door don't, and that creates um, an e a disequilibrium. So make the rules the same for everybody. Let America entrepreneurship take over, and we'll be fine. Yes, and stop the partisanship because I don't yeah. think it's getting us anywhere. No, I mean it, it's 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 counterproductive. If it were up to me, I'd get rid of both parties. <laughs> you know, the fact that we think that only two parties can present the best candidates is crazy. Yeah. Right. Because you have to play politics within the political parties. And that's how you get to even smaller jobs, mayor or whatever it may be. And so, you know, let's just get rid of them. George Washington on on his um, 
the speech he gave when he left office said the thing he was most concerned about was political parties. And he was right. Yeah. Yep. See, he knew best even all the way back then. And, and here I am sounding like a politician saying all these things. I know. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, you know, this is another thing that I thought was really interesting that you had commented before that you despise meetings. I despise yeah. meetings, too. You're going to be part of this new advisory group. You might have a lot of meetings. Now, what is your what is your solution then if we're not going to have meetings? Because I that's the thing that I honestly hate the most about any part Email. of my day. I'm an email freak, right? I'm a, anything you can tell me in a meeting, you can tell me an email. And I'll have if we have questions and go back and forth, and if we just can't figure it out via email, then we can have a phone call. But now, you know, with Zoom like this, we're learning how to deal without meetings. Yeah. And you don't go through the who got the donuts and is so and so here yet or <laughs> where are they at? Everybody's just at home, right? You know, you know that they're where they're going to be, and you don't have to have all the niceties. Everybody, you just get to work, and you're a lot more efficient. And so I don't mind the Zoom meetings nearly as much, but I start with email. Hit me up via email anytime. And then, you know, the only time I'm going to show up is when you're going to write me a check. If you write me a check, I'll show up. You'll be at the meeting. And I am very lucky right now because you are not being compensated for this interview. And yet we are on a Zoom meeting. So I am forever grateful. And before I let you go, I want to talk about giving our listeners tips because my podcast is called Supercharged Life. And it's all about giving people a tangible tip that they can implement in their lives. And your whole entire life story, the way that you give advice and we learn from you, it just makes me think about this idea of solution focus. You know, how can people become more solution focused? Because you identify the problem, but you don't dwell on it. You don't complain about it. You don't blame people. You go right to ideas that we can start implementing to make things better. So how can somebody use that for themselves in their lives? I mean, you have to, right? Look, you can look backwards and you can get upset and it's not going to change anything. You know, I had a business real quick. I had a business that we had my micro solutions that I talked about earlier. We had $84,000 in the bank. I got a call from the bank. Our receptionist who was going to just um, mail out our pay, our pay, our accounts payable checks, whited out the payees, wrote in her name, took it to the bank. They cashed them all, took 82 out of $84,000 that we had in the bank and came this close to going out of business. I was mad for like a minute. And then I realized, what good does that do? Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't change anything. And so it, it just consumed energy for me. Then we had to get back to work. And that's the same way I learned that lesson. Then I try to carry it forward now. And if there's something I don't know how to solve, chances are there's a resource somewhere that at least gives me a clue on where to start or it gives me enough information to know I can't do it and I can turn to somebody else and find somebody else that can. Because just knowing what you can do is important. Knowing what you can't do and not fooling yourself is important as well. But when you face that challenge, just try. What have you got to lose? I mean, it's not like you don't have the time. It's not like you're going somewhere. Right. And I love what you have said in the past about just you know, how can I make this better? Whenever you see a business, you see a problem, you ask yourself those types of questions so yep. that you can get to the next step. And Absolutely. I think that that's a really important lesson for everybody to learn, especially as they're thinking right now, especially people feel out of control. People, there's so much uncertainty. And I think it's easy for people to dwell in that complaining piece of things. And, and sometimes blame makes them feel like they have a little control. Like they've done something. Yeah. Like they've done something. Yeah. yeah. Look at all the people making masks, making isolation gowns, just trying to contribute. You know, there's a thousand ways that you can contribute. You know, you can, you know, Zoom your, your grandparents or your friends or talk to people you haven't talked to and, and, and brainstorm, right? There's just 
there's so many things you can do, but when you find a problem, do your best to solve it. And now, you know, quarantine, you have much more time to do, get online, do the research, do the reading, watch the videos, whatever it takes just to learn. Because when we're on the other side of this, one of the, particularly if you're looking for a job, right? The number one question, if you go to an interview is going to be, what did you do during the pandemic of 2020? And if your answer is nothing, you think you're going to get the job? If your answer is, I learned this, accomplished that, took up this hobby, you know, focused on this and have real answers and truly authentically and honestly accomplish those things, you're going to be way ahead of the game. And so recognize that what you do now is going to be a foundation, hopefully, for everything you have to undertake when we come out of this. Yeah. So as individuals take that responsibilities, companies too, because they will be watched and reevaluated at the end of this. How did you treat your employees? How did you take care of people? Yeah, without question, how you how you treat everybody is going to impact your brand for decades. You know, we're such a social 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 media universe now where we, you know, we have our own personal brands, what we put on Instagram, what we put on TikTok, you know, on Snapchat, whatever, Facebook is who we are, right? And it's how we want people to perceive us. And no, you're not going to put a company into your social media posts that you can't relate to, that you don't respect, that you want that you think behave, you know, incorrectly. Um, and so doing the right thing is going to pay dividends. Doing the wrong thing is going to be incredibly costly. And Mark, you are certainly doing your part. I am really embracing learning right now. And I'm going to come to your free AI class tonight on an introduction to artificial intelligence that is being held by the Mark Cuban Foundation. You have also just released an awesome chance for people to play with the Mavericks. Yes. yes, yes. Yeah. Um, check out my social media to get information, but it's called the All In Challenge. And so you can buy chances to win the chance to put on a Mavs uniform, be in the starting lineup, be in the layup lines, go to the free throw line. We'll chant MVP, MVP for you. Like you're challenging for the MVP race and contribute really to helping people. And we're going to really work hard to raise $100 million to feed those in need. And so it's a great cause, the All In Challenge. Not just me, but there's a lot of folks that are putting them out there. But my my um, I'm M Cuban on all, all social media, Instagram, Facebook, everywhere. Just go check it out. You guys got to go into this challenge. 100% of the donations, as Mark mentioned, is going to go directly to Feeding America, Meals on Wheels, World Central yep. Kitchen, and No Kid Hungry. Yep. Thanks, Judy. Thanks for bringing it up. Absolutely. And you got to also watch Mark on ABC's Shark Tank Friday nights at 8, 7 central. And we're calling all robotics and AI entrepreneurs, right? Because that is going to bring be- it. Bring it on. Bring it on. It's the next generation, guys. And it's never, ever, ever too early to learn about what you can do for this world and to learn about business and entrepreneurship. And it was just such a pleasure and honor to have you today, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate you. And thank you for listening to this episode of Supercharged Life. Remember to subscribe, download, and tell your friends. And take a moment to leave a review because it'll mean so much to me. If you like the show and want to learn more, follow me at Dr. Judy Ho. And remember, anytime is a great time to supercharge your life like Mark Cuban. 